So I was moving from New York City to Denver, Colorado. I'm sorry, you guys. This is like, <laughs> like the house has been pin drop silent like all morning, and now the dog's barking and my husband's talking. Anyway, so we started. We started actually because both Emily and I had. <laughs> Okay, welcome to another episode of Business School. My name is Phineas Ellis. I am the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. And I'm Stephen Cool, the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand. On today's episode, we have Lee Mayer, who is the co-founder and CEO of Havenly, a business that comes highly recommended by many people in the home and interior design space. Okay, so to start... Just tell us about Havenly and then specifically, what was it like starting a company with your sister? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so Havenly is the easiest way to decorate your home. So we're an online interior design service. You come online, you pay a flat fee, um, you can choose one of our designers who are awesome. You then work with them online to sort of help you really bring your home dreams come to life. Um, so we go through and sort of recommend products for you. We show you sort of a visualization um, and a floor plan so you know exactly what to do with your space. And then you can buy everything we suggest for you as well right online. And so how'd you get started? You know, it was kind of a funny moment. Um, we, we started the company and I think the idea came to us sometime in either 2013 or 2014. I was moving from New York City to Denver, Colorado. And in New York, you have like really small, at least I had a really small apartment with like really smart furniture. And Denver, you know, I bought a house with, a, you know, multiple bedrooms and like two living rooms, right? And then Emily was moving um, out of college, I believe, or into New York City. And so we were both kind of going through these moments in our life where we were, we were working full time. So we had stuff to do during the day. But we also felt like we were at these pivotal moments in life, like we were becoming adults. Um, I had just gotten married, bought my first house. And there was this idea that you wanted your home to really be a reflection of who you thought you were, you know, like reflect your style, reflect the way you wanted to live. And what I thought was really interesting at the time is there was nothing that was helping me sort of get there. Like even though so many of us um, watch HGTV shows and like scroll through Pinterest, there was nothing that really sort of solved the need for the majority of people. You can go to an interior designer. They were very relatively expensive. And then they would say things like, you know, meet me at a design center on, on Tuesday at 2 p.m. or something crazy like that. And, you know, th things that really just didn't work with sort of our lifestyle. Or you could go it alone. And I think the idea of going it alone was really intimidating for us uh, both. And so that's kind of how it started. You know, and I, I think, you know, it sort of became one of those things where we thought about it as an idea. And then it ended up being something that we we sort of ended up kind of doing full time and leaving our other jobs and, and you know, really sort of loving, loving the idea and loving our customer base. So tell us how the business model works. So I am a new homeowner and I have a house or an apartment. I sign up for a subscription and then you pair me with a designer and then they design my space, purchase the stuff, ship it. How extensive is the offering? Yeah, great question. So yes, that's about right. So you, you come online, you actually take a style survey. We use that to identify designers who we think would work best for you. You can actually choose the designer you like best though. Um, we, we do want you to feel like you're choosing the person that works best for you. Um, and then, you know, we work online, you get, an, you know, as many revisions as it takes to kind of get get the design you're happy with. 
And then you purchase everything, um, if you want, directly through us online. We work with um, every vendor you know of, um, for the most part. And I think from our perspective, the convenience of having all of that in one place is very helpful for the customer. We don't necessarily hold ship it ourselves. That actually gets shipped from our vendors directly to you. But we can do things like help you with returns or help you track down your orders and sort of consolidate all of your purchases all in one place. You know, one of the, the things that I've been fascinated by has been sort of the evolution of e-commerce. And in particular, like what pockets of e-commerce are doing really well even in the presence of Amazon, right? Like where are the areas in which Amazon potentially isn't competing very well? And I think for us, one of the things we realized in, in, is in sort of aspirational categories and in discovery-led categories, um, Amazon is not like the behemoth it is in say consumer electronics, which is a more commoditized place, right? And I think, I think for us, home was a very big vertical um, and, you know, Stephen, you know this, but it's, it's an enormous vertical, not a ton of players, like a lot of legacy stuff still happening. Um, you know, Amazon really doesn't have a ton of, you know, as much share as one would expect in the furniture category, relatively fragmented. I thought it was kind of interesting. But the other thing that I kind of really um, had this thesis around was, you know, in, in a world in which you can access 12 trillion products at your fingertips. And the innovation on e-commerce that I was sort of really thinking about was effectively taking those trillions of products and narrowing it down to what works for you, right? This idea that like, what's actually interesting now that we have all of the assortment one could ever want is not assortment, it's actually curation and personalization. And so I think for, from our perspective, that's really always something we'd sort of been playing around with and I've, I've had like a particular interest in, and this is sort of our manifestation of that in the home space. We wanna talk about competition. So first off, there have been a number of failed startups in this space, namely Laurel & Wolf and Home Polish, which both raised a bunch of money, had a ton of press, but failed in a fairly spectacular fashion. Yeah. What differentiates Havenly, why have you guys been able to just continue to, to grow and be successful where others have crashed and burned? Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny, you look at some of these other companies and um, and certainly, you know, when you're when you're a competitor in the space, you spend some time doing some soul searching around what the issues were, just so you could at least, you know, look for them or at least come up with new issues of your own. You know, you don't want to sort of repeat other people's failures. And I think, you know, I think there are kind of a couple of things that happened. You know, one of the things that I, I say, is sort of that that's sort of interesting is um is some of it was like a little bit of luck and i say that because you know frankly the reality is some of these companies likely had at least some portion of their failures attributed to the types of investors and the board they had and the reason i say this is i was looking at one of the companies that i think um went under and i won't name that company but you know, one of the things that I think is easy to do when you're an investor or a board member is you say, well, a comp this company that I have succeeded because of X. Thus, you should do Y. And your story should fit Y. And if it doesn't, then either I'm not going to continue to support you or, you know, you're doing something wrong or I'm going to pull funding, you know, all of those things. And what, what is the reality is, Every business in every category has sort of a different contour to it. You know, the scale of growth, 
the manner in which you grow, the way you sort of choose to develop your product and what that product means for your consumer is going to be different depending on the business and the customer segments you're targeting. And I think sometimes um, you can actually, in, in some cases, I think some of those companies were almost victims of their own success. They raised from a lot of money from at, at high valuations at like from these like incredible blue chip firms. Um, but the thing about blue chip firms sometimes, again, is like they're sort of in the business of looking for that one success. And if you're not that one success, you sometimes will not see someone, see those people sort of follow you through. And so like what I, what I say about that is like, let's be clear, I was not given term sheets by these people, right? Like to be perfectly honest, if, if you know, one of the, if Benchmark had given me a term sheet, I would have taken it. Um, and so my, my joke a little bit is like, you know, I think somehow we escaped a little bit of that um, in some ways because we didn't, you know, honestly have the opportunity to sort of go that sort of route. Um, now, we did raise funding and we raised funding from incredible investors, but we were lucky to have investors that um, and, and, board, and a board, frankly, that was really sort of understanding that this category is going to look a little different and the way you grow in this category is going to be different. I think the second thing is, again, home's a little hard. Um, there is, a, you know, home, as, as we all know, has sort of a little bit less of that recurring element. It's a high dollar value category. It's highly sort of correlated to the markets. Um, there's a lot there. And I think, I think there's a little bit, too, of a touch of being a little too early. When you look at the demographics of millennials and home, it's only really now that they're starting to buy homes. Um, and for our product, for example, you're three times as likely to convert if you own a home versus rent a home. Um, and so, you know, if you think about just sort of like the demographics, when if, you know, home polish, I think started in 2010, you know, millennials really weren't, didn't have the discretionary income and they weren't really buying homes quite yet. I think you're really seeing household formation now. So, so there's a possibility that, that in actuality, they were just a little bit early and we were able to sort of, again, with the patience of our board and investors and sort of heads down execution, we were able to sort of last this long. And now we're seeing a lot of the demographic tailwinds, I think that were bound to happen anyway, accelerate by COVID, obviously, as well. And so, you know, again, some things are, you know, it sort of goes to show you, like, there's a lot of luck in this business. I, I'd love to be able to say that, like, I was somehow smarter than everyone else. I don't think that's the case. I think, uh, I think you know, for a variety of reasons, we just got really lucky. It is, though, I think a, a lesson inside of what you just said is on some level, it's about, you know, product market fit, scaling and, and growth and getting as big as you can, as quick as you can. Sure, that's a story that's been played out too often and we're all too familiar with. However, oftentimes it's also about surviving as yeah. long as you can, stretching the life the lifeline, the you know, the life cycle of your business for as long as you possibly can so that you can get lucky. Yeah. You know, so that you have the opportunity to to capture the moment when something like COVID happens, if your business will benefit from it, or, you know, when the millennial generation matures enough where they're, you know, the, the, the generation that really embodied direct consumer and is the most comfortable buying stuff online came of age. And That's so right. even if you're too early, it's still about just stay alive as long as you possibly can. So if you overraise, have the self-awareness, not, not that they did, and I don't know enough about their story, but to save your money, not overspend, not try to generate a customer that doesn't exist, that doesn't want what you have. Well, the, the whole idea of over-raising is, <laughs> I think you're supposed to have enough so that if things do take a downturn, you can weather them. It's not just so you can spend more money to get a little bit of marginal extra growth. But that's been the case forever, right? For the At least for the last like 
eight to ten years is that you over raise so that you can spend more so that you can acquire more customers whether or not those customers actually want what you have to offer you think that you can spend your way into their world right and you can create a market and that's just not how it works it's definitively not i mean i think i think sometimes it does work like discount sites um, or flash sale sites were sort of the classic hallmark of this where like it works for a while and then all of a sudden your margins get squeezed and you're not offering the discounts anymore. And there are a lot of, you know, other discount sites in your, so, you know, flash sale sites in your category. And so you sort of saw how that works. Um, so again, it, it like can, you know, sometimes you'll see sort of false positives around it. And I think that's why people do it. Um, but yeah, you know, the home space is interesting in the sense that like, you get slapped pretty hard if you try and if you try and just sort of directly acquire through paid acquisition. It is an incredibly expensive category to sort of buy customers because, you know, how often are you going to buy a couch? Um, it, not very often, it turns out, and it's very difficult to sort of understand who's likely to buy a couch. And so you really have to sort of invest in other channels and be creative. Um, and I think, you know, one I say be creative, but like part of it's just old fashioned, right? Like I think one of the things that we did right that we were sort of a little bit smarter about than potentially some of our other competitors was how do we get the best customer experience in the design process? Like, how do we get that to go? Because if we can do that, at a minimum, what we've got going for us is word of mouth. And and that's, you know, ultimately free apart from the cost to serve. And so I think, I think you know, there's some sort of interesting learnings along the way. But I, yeah, I totally agree, Stephen. Like, raise more money if you want to. Like, that's, that's not the problem. Just be disciplined about, like, not, you know, going crazy on your burn rates and, like, and your acquisition costs because it's usually not going to work for you. Which is a funny thing when you're fundraising then because when you don't need the money, investors are like, Oh, so what are you going to spend the money on? And you're like, well, I'm not. I'm just going to have it for to have opportunistic capital. And then they're like, okay, well, I want you to I, I want you to burn less money. I want you to actually make money, but I also want you to spend the money somehow. And it's like, oh, I can't, I can't spend it and not spend it at the same time. I don't know, like everything can't be an investment that doesn't show up on the P&L or gets amortized <laughs> over 30 years. So wh why is that? Why is that? I'll let me answer my own question and then see if you guys agree. The answer to the question, I think, is that that investors just want the quickest growth possible so that they can see if you're a winner because they just try to pick winners, to your point, Lee. And they want to know if you're a winner as soon as possible. So if you're a winner, spend the money. We'll figure it out so we can double down on you and then get an exit. But the idea of us investing in you and then you intentionally growing your business over a longer period of time and maybe saving that money for a rainy day like a global pandemic is not what they're interested in because they're just not interested in that timeline because it's not the way venture capital is set up. Does that feel right to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I, you know, part of the argument that sometimes I'll hear, which is a fair one, is like finance strategy. It's like, if it's just going to sit in your bank account, I want it to go somewhere where it's going to make real return. And and I, I understand that, right? Like, I, I you know, from, from an, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I think investors are doing what is best for them. And, you know, that's fine. But I think as an entrepreneur, you have to sort of think about, think about that a second. Like, yeah, your investor is going to come to you and be like, you've got money in the bank, like invest here or like do this faster. And I think it's your job to sort of push back and be like, you know, like the, the way that our business is going to mature is not by necessarily always dumping capital in in year zero, right? Um, and I think I think that that's that's something that like honestly, you know, good boards are able to sort of help you 
sort of walk that line of potentially investing too little and sort of not doing all the right things for the business, but also like ensuring that you've got the runway and enough capital in the bank so you feel good. The way I've explained it to my board sometimes is look, is I can take bigger risks when I'm comfortable with the runway in the bank. Like you're helping my team mentally take bigger risks if we know that there's runway at the end of the day. And sometimes you can have like these really fruitful conversations with your investors that sort of end up in a good place. Um, and, and it, you know, it, but, but like, again, this is where you can see like a problematic board can actually be really detrimental for a company. Um, if your board's sort of encouraging you to like grow X and, and the only mechanism you can think of to grow X is to like dump money into, you know, television ads on Monday Night Football or whatever. Do you have an example of a moment where in the process of building your business, you made a mistake in that you overspent or you just you assumed something about the customer that was completely wrong and maybe somebody on your board steered you right or maybe they didn't and you guys paid the price. Can you speak to a moment where that happened where you like yeah. took the path the path that you didn't in retrospect want to take or should have taken yeah absolutely actually so we raised our series a we closed in early 2016 and we actually had two leads one lead was a, a you know still sits on our board is a very sort of thoughtful investor um another lead investor was um was not as thoughtful i would say and like sort of had a had a you know burn it and go like yolo mentality and so in 2016 we spent a shit ton. I think that's like the technical term for it on marketing for like six months. And, and you know, this is why I say I say this because it's so tempting. Like even when you, you know, even now, even when I know it's not going to work, I still get tempted, right? Because it's it's like crack. You you know it's there. There are, you know, however mil many millions of people on Facebook or Instagram, like you can actually get in front of them if you feel like spending that money. And it's incredibly tempting. And so, yeah, you know, we spent a, a lot of money for six months and my burn rates got really uncomfortably high. And you know what, what ended up happening actually is I looked at, you know, it's as simple as like, it wasn't actually my board, it was the act of, of putting together the board deck for my board meeting. And I'm looking at this advertising line, right? Like our paid acquisition line and it goes like up into the right. And I'm looking at our customer numbers and it was by no means mirroring that line. <laughs> like, you know, you sort of have this exponential growth in paid marketing spend and a relatively, you know, solid growth. But like, by the way, it wasn't like a kinky line. It wasn't like, oh, when I started to spend, like my, my growth went up. It was like my growth just kept going the way it was going. And like, I'm not a genius, right? But like, when you see it sort of presented like that, like you, you start to realize like that you have to, you know, I think again, there's a little bit of intellectual honesty that has to kind of come into this. Um, and it's like, you start to realize that this probably isn't working. And, and, and what was interesting too is um, we realized that our product wasn't ready as well. Like our NPS score started to slide, our purchase rate. So again, like the amount of money, the amount of times people were buying their furniture at the end of a design started to decline. And I started to realize that like scaling is all well and good, but like the reality is if I don't have a product that people are, are gonna like, I'm not doing myself a service by putting it in front of a lot of people. So we ended up actually, we went to zero. We took our paid marketing spend. I remember we went to the board meeting and I was like, you guys, we're gonna have to invest in some technology to make sure like we can put guardrails around the service and make sure the quality is relatively high. And oh, by the way, um, I'm pulling marketing and I'm going to zero. <laughs> 
and by this point in time, um, you know, I think the board had sort of gotten to know me a little bit. We, you know, there's a little bit of like just calibration after a series A, like your board's new, everyone's sort of fresh. You don't really know everyone. But I was lucky in that they were like, yep, sounds like, sounds like a smart strategy. You should do that. <laughs> and again, I, you know, in another circumstance, you can imagine a world where people are like, what are you talking about? Um, and instead I, I got, I got a lot of support, which is great because, you know, then when you come back the next quarter and you're like, Hey, you know, like my registrations have dropped or my user counts have dropped. People are like, yeah, we, we, we held hands on that. We agreed to that. But like, what are, what about the other metrics you were looking at? Did that work? Did the investment technology work and quality work? And, you know, I think it ultimately created a, a good, a good learning for me, but I'll be totally honest. Like every quarter I look at my numbers and I'm like, oh, you know, maybe we should up our, maybe we should try TV ads. Like that seems to work, you know, it never works, but like, it's tempting. It's really tempting. Wait, but you are doing TV ads. We are doing, we actually don't do TV. We do retargeting on OTT. So it's bottom of the funnel stuff. Uh, you'll see it if you've come to our site before. So that's why I'm seeing it now. Yeah. So that's probably okay. where I'm seeing it. Yeah. That's smart. Yeah. So we're not, on, we're not doing like the, like, broadcast TV ads. I was laughing because, um, so our, our customers are mostly women. I, typically in the in the home design space in particular, the vast majority of the customer base will be women. Um, and we had a competitor that was like in 2019 blanketing Monday Night Football with like broadcast TV ads. And I like, I couldn't, you know, sometimes you're like, oh man, like they've got it figured out. Like I should really try what they're trying. And I like couldn't, like at the time I was like, maybe they, they're doing, like they figured out something that like I haven't figured out. Like maybe they're all these dudes watching football out there that like really want to decorate their homes um and then you know and then you know i realized that, that probably wasn't the case <laughs> i i love seeing stuff like that and sometimes it's that other times I, I i know that we have done either ads or photography that just didn't work but then other people will copy us like that style and they'll blast it all over their website and i'm like yes they don't know yet that that doesn't work. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> it's so bad. I know you see it sometimes. Um, you know, obviously, imitation is is the highest form of flattery, particularly in business. Um, but you do see some like funny things where you're like, ah, that's not going to work. Uh, but you know, you go and try it. You do you. <laughs> that, that's great. You guys really rooting for people to succeed out here. Just you guys hoping be- for people to. <laughs> I want I want Havenly to succeed. I don't want my direct competitor. <laughs> You're like I I suffered this, and I want to, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines and watch you <laughs> impale yourself. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> the point you made about raising a Series A, spending too much money on marketing. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people make that mistake. We definitely made it in spades. Did the exact same thing and had that same conversation with the board of like, yeah, we fucked up. We know it. <laughs> we should hire we need to hire someone who knows what they're doing on marketing we're gonna hire a real marketer and they're like yep you definitely should you should should hire a recruiter you should pay a recruiter a lot of money to go find like a really good one because you guys don't know what you're doing like yeah okay that's what we're gonna do yeah but i do think that there's something to the you figured it out though you righted the ship really quickly and i think that's what differentiates people who are going to be successful versus not successful it's not the only thing right there's all these other factors you talked about luck of course is, is is huge but I think the the point is like, do you have enough capital? Have you have you raised enough capital to afford yourself to make mistakes and learn from them? And then can you actually learn from those mistakes and figure it out and continuously improve? And if you can, 
that's what success looks like. And you just need investors that are going to give you enough money and be patient enough while you make, while you have those learnings, um, assuming that you actually learn. Cause not everybody does. Some people just keep making the same mistakes over and over again and then eventually run out of money. Yeah. It's like, it's like, there's this interesting, um, tension, um, you know, starting a business requires a little bit of stubbornness and a little bit of sort of being willing at least to sort of dismiss the, the obvious. But there's also this like learning component and like, you know, again, being intellectually honest about what's going on and sort of pragmatic about about the reality. And there's a tension between the two, between the visionary dreamer, um, I'm going to stick with it and the I'm going to learn and follow the data and, you know, sort of. And, and, and I, I do think that like, again, you know, great boards, great advisors, great investors are, are able to help you through that. And, and also, by the way, empathize with that. Um, and so, by the way, I no longer take, you know, capital or meaningful amounts of capital from people that haven't been operators because I, I feel like that is like I you know again the, the one board member that I was or the one investor that I was referring to was never an operator and he'd be like the type of person that would say things like work harder like just work a little harder and I'm like what the f like you know after after like a hundred oh I did never thought of that <laughs> like asshole sorry sorry <laughs> but but you know you can, you can swear oh, okay good just make sure but but yeah you know I think I think there's there's got to be a little bit of empathy around like no one really gets it perfect um and you know sometimes you get lucky sometimes you get it right sometimes you get it wrong um but the reality is like i can't tell you how much to follow the data or how much to spend or how you know like again it's very different for for different people and different businesses yeah interesting so as you think about competition today obviously it shifts where are you today like when you look at the landscape and you think about who you're competing against is it just big box or is it just i don't even know what the big box equivalent would be or is it just like local designers that have big portfolios yeah so we're competing with free the willingness and, and want to do it yourself yeah um, and so we do have, you know, I, I will say we do have a couple direct competitors still out there. Um, you know, we're no longer sort of looking at them. We're looking at like the whole wide world of people, the $230 billion in home spend, 200 billion of which is spent not through a designer at all. And I, and I think that that's really what we're thinking about. So we're competing with like, you know, a Pinterest yep. or just like, you know, to your point, like any retailer that allows you to sort of go in and, and do it yourself. But it's not really a direct competition, right? Like we also work with them and, and we're, you know, sometimes they're our best advertisement as well. Um, and yep. so so it's a little bit more complex, but it is, you know, we're a sort of a, a category creator um, and, and that makes things challenging you know we're trying to change behavior in some ways and we're competing with free which is also hard um but again like i think i think it's kind of been fun to think about how you can get someone over the hump of, of thinking about using a service like ours how do you navigate offering your own products because part of the trust is like we're experts we'll go find the right products but i'm going to re recommend some of my own products like how do you how do you get out in front of that and and still maintain trust with your consumers yeah it's a great question i mean i think i think the reality is we've sort of drawn a line and um, and said we won't do all of our own products like that will not be anything we do we're we're, we're not a single brand play we're um you know we're, we're definitely committed to having multiple brands in a car that really is the value we provide otherwise you could just go to like a west elm and use their design services um and so our perspective on our own product is it's you know hopefully additive um it provides something unique you won't be able to get elsewhere perfectly transparently we make more money on the products we sell but you know we're also very selective about uh, about what we 
sort of developed because the other thing that we have to think about is it's hard. You know this very well, Stephen. Logistics in the furniture space is really, really hard. And so we don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about doing, for example, sofas on our own because we're not going to do that well. And so we we always know that there are categories we just don't want to enter. It's really like, again, where can we add some sort of unique flair, potentially make a little bit more money? fill a void and potentially demand that we're seeing. Um, and, and you know, so, you know, we're trying to make it as sort of customer forward as possible. But, you know, we'll never be the, the company that sort of only sources sort of Havenly product. Um, and that's sort of the, the line we drew. I think that's really smart. That's a great answer. For anybody listening, I've talked to other interior design firms who had the wrong answer to that, which I think was like, we'll eventually shift to all of our own product. And I was like, well, if you do that, you're not an interior design firm. Yeah, like you're, you're, you're selling your own product, which is fine. You know, that's fine. But let's, which let's is fine. But that's are. a yeah. completely different business model. That's right. Yeah. 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 So what is the future of the business? Are you going to sell it next year? Are you going to raise more money? Are you going to join a SPAC and go public? <laughs> what, you know, the, there seems like there's a unlimited amount of options for companies these days. And if, it's, if you're friends with, with kids on Reddit, you just need to get public quick. They can, they can boost your stock price. I know. I was like, how do I get on wall street bets? Exactly. So <laughs> what can we expect? How are you thinking about the future? Great question. I think, um, you know, the the best answer is like, I don't know that I spend a lot of time thinking about exit strategies at this point in the game. I think we're very much in the thick of it. Uh, there's a lot of upside for us. We're seeing a lot of growth. And so I'm not out there sort of looking for an acquisition. Um, and, and, you know, by the way, I think companies like the, the cliche is like companies are bought, not sold. You know, don't get me wrong, Phineas, if you know someone who's willing to buy us for a very, very large multiple on, on trailing 12 revenue, um, I'm all ears. Uh, but that being said, that's, that's not really the, the ballgame. Um, <laughs> start start playing up those subscription stats. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. We know Phil Krim just it has a SPAC. Uh, yeah. He, men he mentioned on the podcast. So, you know, maybe we can do a little matchmaking here. We can here. get it together. That would be awesome. But, and, you know, I, th I think SPACs are uh, interesting, but likely uh, not... The, quite the right approach for us at this moment in time. So yeah, you know, I think I think we'll we'll be looking at um, how we continue to invest. We're um, you know a hair away from sort of hopefully being EBITDA positive, hopefully. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're not going to raise more capital. You know, it's kind of an exciting time. I do, I do think like if you're an enterprise company right now, I think there's a little bit of a, a difference in like how the market's viewing enterprise versus consumer. If you're an enterprise company right now, you're raising on like, uh, you know, 100x forward 12 ARR and it's insane. Um, no, seriously, uh, like I think consumer companies are a little bit more down to earth in terms of what their what their options are. Um, but it's you know, it's it's kind of an exciting time. Like I, I don't think any of us. Sort Sort of sitting in March of 2020 would have expected to have such sort of favorable conditions, both from a consumer and, and you know, discretionary consumer discretionary demand point of view, and also from a funding and sort of exit point of view. So I'm, um, I'm happy that, you know, my deepest fears uh, from March 15, 2020 did not come to pass. And we're sort of facing, you know, friendlier environments. And what do you think is going to be the impact on yourself and the broader industry once we get past COVID? You know, it's a great question. I think everyone's been thinking about this. I'm sure I'm sure you, you have too. It's this idea that like, 
we've had a uh, you know a really good pull for the last couple of months, where as people have been sort of resting, sheltering in place, and really thinking about home differently. But the more I think about it, the more durable I think that is. Like, you know, a lot of uh, companies, for example, have moved to at least more of a flexible or remote working structure. People are going to be spending more time, time at home. Folks have been moving out of sort of these large urban areas and rented apartments into buying homes and sort of second tier cities or the suburbs. Um, I think home is just in particular for the generation that we target, which is sort of the broadly the millennial and Gen Z population. I think home has taken on a sort of bigger um, place in people's lives. And I think that that at a minimum is durable over the long term. And then the obvious point, um, and this is, by the way, beyond just the home category, is like everything's done online now. Like my mom's doing stuff online now. My mom can't, honestly, in like January of 2020, my mom couldn't figure out how to navigate to Safari on her phone. Like now she's like using Instacart. And, you know, like, it's really weird, you know? Um, and so, you know, if my if my seven-year-old Indian mother can, can like, figure out how to do interior design online, I think everyone can. And, and so I do think that rapid digitization um, is something that's going to stick. Um, and so, you know, look, we might see a little pullback here and there, but, um, but I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that a lot of the trends that have shifted over the last year will continue to sort of work in our favor for those of us in the home category and, or in just in general in the e-commerce world. I, I pray that you're right, but I think you are. So I've done, <laughs> I hope so. Too. As I'm sure you know, a lot of a lot of research also to make sure that this is the case. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope anyway. <laughs> well, Lee, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. Hopefully, this was fun for you. Super fun. It was great to see you all. Class dismissed. <laughs> thank you for listening. If you want to support this podcast, the best thing you can do is hit the subscribe button. Take a minute, hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified whenever we come out with a new episode.